Good morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I will be reading Philippians 3, verses 17 to 19. This is week four on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your ongoing, sustaining, sanctifying grace. The grace that constantly gives your people ears to hear and to revel in the beauty of your salvation of us. So cause that to happen in each and every heart and soul this morning as we worship you around the word to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 17 to 19, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us because many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Our text is simple. Do this. Because others have not. And they will be destroyed. Okay, that right there is what's led me to set a larger theological backdrop in grasping and understanding the life of sanctification. The life of persevering faith, which means the life of persevering obedience of faith for those who were justified. We have seen in the last three weeks, first, that all whom the Lord is saving must persevere in faith to the end. And we have seen that every single person who is saved by Jesus will absolutely persevere to the end. In other words, we have seen that the warnings in the Scripture, the warnings throughout the New Testament are for believers. The if clauses in the New Testament are real. For instance, Hebrews 3 Verses 14 to chapter 4, verse 2. Just hear the word of the Lord, believer. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. And so we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Because good news came to us as Christians, just as to them in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because those words were not united by faith in those who heard. Okay, so that just leads to this then this last week. Pretty sure. The perseverance of the saints. It leads to the problem of assurance. Assurance of salvation. And the problem of the assurance of salvation is not a problem about the facts and the truth of the gospel of Christianity. It's not about whether there is a God or not or whether God became a human being and died on a cross for the sins of people. And was raised from the dead. And that all who believe in him will be saved. Assurance is not a problem about those facts. The real problem is whether I personally am saved by those facts. It boils down to whether do I have saving faith. And at times when it comes to assurance, that, that sense that Christians, all Christians, to one degree or another, must wrestle with it at some time or not. It, it, it comes down to text of Scripture that you read. Like Jesus saying in Matthew 7, many will come to me in that day saying, Jesus, Jesus, did we not do all kinds of works in, in your name and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And so the troubling question for believers is, do I really have saving faith? Is my faith real? Or am I somehow self-deceived? And to help that, there are large segments within evangelicalism in our time, and in books and everything else, that, that try to solve the problem of the assurance of salvation by making sanctification or holiness or pursuing holiness, trying to make that 
not necessary. And therefore, you got to share it. It's irrelevant how you live your life the next three years or 30 years. We're confronted by voices within American evangelicalism. Oh, when I hear Christians call up a radio program or something and start using this word unconditional, it just makes me cringe. Because of the way it is so often used. Because what they hear in sermons and, 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 and in books, they use the word unconditional very carelessly. As in the terms unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. Salvation is unconditional without making any effort to qualify or make distinctions biblically between what is unconditional and what is not unconditional. Without clarifying the difference between what is unconditional, like God's electing love. It's unconditional. New birth. Unconditional. But without distinguishing that love of God in new birth, love of God in election from what is not unconditional. Like God's love of justification and God's love of final glorification. They say, look, if, if God re requires any measure of obedience from the Christian practical holiness and pursuit, then no, that, that would bring three terrible things. It would, one, nullify grace. Secondly, it would contradict justification by faith alone. And thus, thirdly, it destroys the possibility of having assurance of salvation. Okay. That's just not true. But here's my argument this morning. Instead, the assurance, which is a precious gift from God, of a knowing, a confidence. I belong to Him. I'm saved. I know where I'm going. Oh, the Bible wants the believer to have that. But it's not founded on denying many texts in the New Testament. That's not the way to assurance. So first I want to briefly comment on those three objections and then together see how we can help each other in finding a full assurance of our faith. So first, Joe, when you put it that way, if there's anything that is in any way from here to glorification required, well, then what you do is you nullify grace. No. Sanctification, which is required, that process is going on in everyone who is saved. And if it doesn't, 
It's showing they're not. But that sanctification flows out of the foundation of the grace of God in forgiveness. It's flowing out of justification. It's flowing out of that which already is totally absolved of all guilt. The grace brought that, and the grace doesn't stop there. The grace of God in sanctification continues from there. For instance, you remember how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, good, start. And His grace toward me was not in vain. Explain, Paul. On the contrary, I, I, Paul, worked. Uh, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. Though it was not I, but it was the grace of God in me, with me, producing that. So grace is not only the pardon of our sins that passes over our badness. Grace is the ongoing work of God in the believer that is producing to one measure or another goodness. And so if God says grace is necessary for that in the Christian life, then it's not nullifying grace for a Christian to agree with God. Therefore, sanctification and the necessity of that in all believers does not nullify grace. Secondly, the necessity of sanctification does not contradict justification by faith alone. I spent four weeks over in the last couple months on justification and made it crystal clear that every sin of God's people past, present, and in the future have been forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. And that justification then is the foundation of sanctification. Never the other way around. And there's a massive Difference practically in one, what one understands about the gospel. There is nothing that I said in that four-week series on justification that says, since justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any good works that you do. There's nothing that I said there that says, therefore, sanctification is optional to those who are justified. I didn't say, and the Bible does not say, that forgiveness of sins and Christ's righteousness imputed to us means that how we live is irrelevant or optional to getting glorified in the end. Saint, justification doesn't make sanctification optional. Justification makes sanctification guaranteed by God.
The faith that justifies is the same faith that will sanctify. Because faith at its core is not some pressure. Yeah, in case there is a God, I want an insurance policy. So, okay, I'll say your prayer. because I don't want to go to hell if maybe there is one. And, and therefore, I'll do that. Okay, I believe. I have faith. That's not what faith is. Faith is the fruit of seeing something. And you only see it because of God's unconditional grace. Or it's, it's, it's the fruit of, of, of tasting. It, it believes, it trusts the promise, it sees it as true, and it, it loves it for the, for the glory that is it. Its faith is that which is coming out of a changed heart, new desires. Faith is the expression, because of the Spirit indwelling, of new desires. And that's why justification and the process of sanctification always go together. They both come and are flowing out of the same faith. Perfection, that'll come at death for the believer or if Jesus returns first. But the pursuit of holiness. Let me just pause. I mean, look, holiness, sanctification, these are the same essential root word in, in Greek. Okay, hagias, or the verb hagiazo, to sanctify or to make holy or to pursue holiness. Okay, it is, it is this pursuit of obedience from a heart of faith toward, towards God. That's, that's what it is. It's on that pursuit of fighting its own sin. But the pursuit of holy living, then, it begins at the initial mustard seed of faith. When you're justified by that faith, as Jesus says, that mustard seed continues. It grows. That's the nature of saving faith. It's finding our heart's desire, our satisfaction, the end for which we're looking for why we exist, we find it in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The third thing then, the necessity of sanctification does not destroy assurance of salvation. See, our natural reasoning can go something like this. If you tell me now as a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I see that I could do nothing for, for that forgiveness. There's no work I can do. There's nothing I could have performed. I deserved nothing but only believing in the gospel. And I'm saved. And that's true. So if you tell me then, but now you must walk a particular way, you have totally destroyed my possibility of assurance that I've actually believed or I'm actually justified. You have told me there's got to be some measure that you're not, and I'm not, objectively qualifying. I mean, how, how far do I have to, to grow? I have found that most, 
most real, genuine Christians with a track record of 30 years or more feel less sanctified than when they first began. Okay, that, 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 that's a reality. And there's a good reason for that. And it's one of the signs because of the way they feel that, that their faith is real. They have been being sanctified and they are being sanctified. But it goes back again. Wait a minute. Am I enough? I did good this week, but then, oh my gosh, that fight between my spouse and me. Oh, the anger, the sinful anger that came up. How am I ever going to have assurance? If there is a requirement for holiness and obedience in the Christian life, then you destroy the possibility of assurance. My response to that is simply this. That kind of reasoning is not the way the Bible reasons. The Bible makes it clear that there is, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Hebrews chapter 12 then commands us to pursue it. Pursue that holiness. But that doesn't destroy assurance. Why? And this is where we're going the rest of the service. Because our assurance, you've got to get it, it is, it's not in looking in the mirror. The assurance of the believer does not come by constantly looking in their progress through the mirror, but it is resting our assurance in God's promise of commitment to sanctify us. It is resting it in the one who chose us, who called us, who granted us the faith who caused us to come alive to him and thus promises, I will sanctify you to the end. That's how the believer rests the head at night. Constantly in the gospel. To know that your sanctification, your persevering in faith to the end, it is only as sure as, it is just as sure as God's choosing you, God's predestinating you, God's calling you. Our assurance comes not primarily by focusing on Am I a little bit further down the road in this area or not? But it comes by focusing on the measure of God's faithfulness to do it, to sanctify us. And so to see this, then I want us to turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and focus here for a bit. Paul writes, starting with verse 23, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Three things here. First, we'll look at the context, the commandments that the Christian is given. Secondly, praying, the prayer of Paul. And thirdly, what it all stands on, the promise. First, the commandments. If you look at the context, Paul had just finished giving a whole string of commands to the church in Thessalonica from verse 14 to verse 22, which ends with that overarching command in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil, Christian. There's the command. And so it's clear, as we have seen over the last couple of weeks, God uses in sanctification commandments and incentives and promises in the Christian's life. See, God does not say, look, I'm the one who sanctifies you and therefore I have nothing to tell you to do. That's not how the Bible works. But the way he sanctifies, it's not merely subconscious. And he'll just do it, so don't even worry about it or think about it. Or you have nothing to hear, nothing to listen to, and nothing to obey. It's not how he does it. He works through our conscious minds and our desiring hearts. He he works by providing motives and commands and incentives in the Christian life. It's one of the main reasons we have a book. That's the first. The commandments, that's the context of what Paul says here about sanctification. Secondly, the, the prayer, because Paul then shifts from exhorting and commanding the believers on how to live and how not to live into verse 23. And, and this is Paul. This is Paul. This is I plead with the Lord for you, praying for them. And now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul your mind, your thoughts, your desires, your heart, and your, and your body, and what you do with your physical body, may it be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So besides the Scripture and believers, as we have seen in the book of Hebrews, encouraging one another every day with the Word of God, with the commands of God, and in the encouragement to persevere in faith. Like Paul here, we also pray for ourselves. We pray for each other. God is the main actor here. So, look, it's, it's total, non-biblical, human, bad reasoning that says, well, if God commands us to abstain from evil, 
Therefore, that means it's totally up to us. And that's just not how the Bible speaks. That's not what this text says. If God says, abstain from sin A, B, C, D, E, abstain from all forms of evil, walk with me, worship me, praise me, continue on, persevere in the faith. It says, move on to the next verse. Verse 24. You move on to, here's the reason, God is faithful. He's faithful combined with those commands. That is, the very God who called you supernaturally. You had zero to do with that. He's faithful. That's what proves, is Paul's point, God's faithfulness proves you will persevere. He will do it. And the it is clearly the sanctification. He will do it. That's the promise. So notice, after giving the commands to the Christian life, his prayer that the Lord will do it, leads him to verse 24. Quote, He who called, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's the way the Apostle Paul handles the problem of assurance. That's the foundation of full assurance. Not you. God who is faithful. That's He did not do what many do. Let's, let's just make the pursuit of holiness and obedience in the Christian life unnecessary in order to have full assurance that we're going to heaven. No. He said, God is faithful and He will surely do the sanctification in your life. The issue of assurance is, will we trust Him? Not, not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but also for His grace working ever so slowly in our lives, making progress against the enslavement of our sinfulness where we see fruit of the Spirit oh so imperfectly. In other words, will we believe what verse 24 says? God is faithful. He will surely 
doing. This process of sanctification is a promise that God will work in every person that he has called to himself. He will work what? What needs to be done in one degree or another of our weakness. The weakness of the brokenness of sin in us and the brokenness of the world and all the, the pain and that he sovereignly and providentially brings his children through. He will be working the measures that he has ordained in the believer's life now and perfect it in the future later. Just to see a parallel passage, flip back a page to 1 Thessalonians 3. And listen to what Paul says here, verses 12 to 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Okay, get this now. That's what, he's, that's what he wants. That's sanctification. But, but why? So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Again, same root word with sanctification. Establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So Paul says it's, it's because of His purpose in calling you. It was to what? Establish your hearts in holiness that you would be Becoming holy. Holiness is the purpose of your call. It's the purpose of every believer's call to come to Christ. Is ultimately holiness. That he thus would be. Okay, I'm going to say I mean it clearly. God would be, according to Paul, unfaithful to his purpose if he just called you to Christ and didn't sanctify you, wasn't working in you holiness. And that's where we need to let our assurance as sinners who, who know that we love Jesus, you let your assurance Go really, really deep, not in you, but in God. It means every successive step of your salvation, it is rooted, he says here, in your call. Remember, that's where Paul's context is coming from when Philippians I press on. Towards the prize of the upward call. He awakened me. He raised me from the dead. He made me his own. He knows me. That call guarantees your sanctification.
He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Your call is rooted in the death of Jesus on the cross. He purchased your call. And the death of Jesus is rooted in God's predestination. And His predestination is rooted in His very individual select choosing and election of you. That's how Paul says it. And you know the text, Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, I don't have time to argue it, but it's just true. That's Paul's way of saying those whom he chose. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, it's assured, he will glorify you. So what Paul, what he is praying is that God would do something now in these Thessalonians' lives. Namely, make them, in chapter 3 there, increase and abound in loving others in the body and then beyond. In other words, sanctification. And he says the goal of that that ongoing work in you during their lives is that when the end comes, they may be established before God in holiness. Because love is the essence of human holiness being worked in us. Okay, so what we've seen is that God is the one who sanctifies. He does it through commands and incentives the Word of God that appeal to our minds and our desires, our motives, and in response to prayer as Paul prays it. But however he does it and however slowly it comes, the main thing is that God does it. He will do it. That's the foundation. That's the ground of the believer's assurance. Assurance does not come by making holiness and sanctification optional in the Christian life. It comes from knowing God is faithful. Okay. So let's feel this and go take it with us. Don't let it be just a lecture. Just a piece of theology. But let it go deep to what you feel in your walk, in your prayer life, in your intimacy with your Savior. 
So ask him, why? Why is it that his faithfulness commits him to sanctify us? The answer is the connection between the other parts of salvation that lead through sanctification to final glorification. You see this in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 24. God who calls you, He's faithful. He's bound Himself to an oath and a covenant through the death of His Son to do this sanctification. And thus He says, He will surely do it. I mean, it's as if Paul there, he says, don't you see it? He who called you. A few weeks back, I preached a whole sermon on that New Testament word. It's a whole theology in it. And that's why it's so important to grasp. He who called you is faithful. It's like he's saying, do you get it, Thessalonians? He called you. Do you understand what that means? Out of darkness, out of blindness, out of your heart, spurning God's glory, he came along. He called you. He, he, he's saying to him, if you actually believe what that means, let, let the roots go deep. He's faithful. He will sanctify you. You will persevere to the end. You cannot not be saved glorified in the end. That's what his faithfulness means. Just think about it. Why does the fact that God called us, why does it mean he has to sanctify us? And I mean it that way. This is why it's so important to grasp the gospel. And, and then and, and what God continues to re- reveal about himself written in the scripture and to grasp more and more of the gospel so that we would feel ourselves caught up in God's whole plan of the order of salvation. And how they fit together. Because once you feel yourself caught up in that. Then you'll know yourself in a deeper way. To be loved by God. With an omnipotent love. To be loved by God with an everlasting and an electing love. To be loved by Him with a predestinating and a Toning and 
calling and justifying and sanctifying and saving love. And thus we'll sing the words of Paul, God is faithful. He will do it. Remember how Paul put it in Ephesians 1, verse 4? It's no accident. He knows exactly what he was doing by the Spirit. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. Your sanctification, your persevering in faith to the end is just as sure as your election is sure. The aim of God in your predestination is your holiness. I just read it. I'll just quote it again. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Becoming like Jesus is as sure as God's purpose of predestination. In God's, in his choosing you, his purpose was his holiness. In his predestining you, his purpose was your holiness. Is it dying for you? His purpose was your holiness. Or as Paul says it this way, your sanctification was in his death. In his calling you to himself, his purpose was your holiness. And so we can say with Paul, he who called me, Oh, I know my unfaithfulness. But he who called me, he's faithful. He will surely do it. Or you can say it the way Paul said it in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, very concisely, but very clearly. God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification. Not apart from sanctification. Salvation comes through sanctification. The final salvation goes through sanctification persevering faith no other way we have a great and glorious foundation of assurance and it's not because holiness pursuing holiness is optional it's because God is faithful And so, Father, that is where we rest. That is why we sing. That is why from our hearts we praise you, 
Lord Jesus, we lift up your name for all of our salvation was purchased by your blood, by your sacrifice. Not just the forgiveness of our sins or the imputation of your righteousness, our justification, our new birth, our call, but you have purchased our sanctification. And though, Lord, we know your faithfulness to this glorious gospel, that's our hope.